Hey guys, it's me, P. And me, S. And you're listening to the Girl on Girl podcast. But it's not what you think. But also, it's kind of what you think. Well, hi, friend. Hi. You're not a stranger to the Girl on Girl community over here. Absolutely not. This is one of my favorite podcasts. (laughs) That's so nice of you to say. Sarah and I are excited to obviously have you back. Um, For the listeners, you would recognize Allie from an episode we did last year at some point. It was in 2022. And then we had you for the panel for sure with some other guests. And thank you so much for being a part of that. Now we are bringing you on this episode to talk about your book called Don't Tell My Parents, Queer Diasporic Truths. I love it. So you released this book... I want to say it came out August 2022, mm-hmm. and it's just been picking up and been sold through a major retailer since then. Indigo Online, it came 2023, but yeah, overall. That's incredible. And did you self-publish? I did self-publish. So I actually went through Freeze and Press, but they are a self-publishing company. Incredible. And what inspired you to, to do it? Have you been wanting to do a book of poetry for a long time, and finally you just bit the bullet? Was there like a catalyst? Yeah, actually. So I never thought I would be writing poetry. I never identified as a poet. I always was like, I don't really do poetry. But uh, in 2019, when I started just experiencing a lot of pain and just tumultuous times within relationships myself, I wanted to start kind of keeping track of my own thoughts. And I, at the time, had briefly dated somebody who wrote poetry. And so I didn't really read any poetry, but I kind of just started up a note on my phone and I started trying to process my own thoughts. I didn't realize it was exactly poetry, but it was only supposed to be for me. Following that, I got into an abusive relationship. And at that point, I started really doubling down on I need to write out my thoughts because I was kind of feeling like I was gaslit. So I just kind of wanted to process my thoughts, see what was ongoing in a concise way. Through that, I just kind of kept on writing and writing. And near the end of that relationship and then another abusive relationship, I don't want to stay silent anymore. I'm going to publish my truths as a book. And that way it's anonymous. I can express myself because I'm a very expressive person. But that used to just come out through like, let me just like make an Instagram post and like have it be some advocacy based caption or like go and literally start a nonprofit. (laughs) I was like, we need something to do about this issue. Then in this case, it, it just it came out as a book and I had the manuscript there. I pitched the very raw, like literally copy pasted from notes, sent it to the publisher and was like, this is my idea. What do you think? And they were like, fabulous let's do it and so that's why it's also in chronological order as opposed to thematic which most poetry books do good for you and i wanted to mention too like really call this out but for anyone who does have the hard copy of this book you did all the illustrations i did i really because this book for me it's more about putting my truth out there i wanted it to reflect me as much as possible so i actually learned how to illustrate just so i can actually kind of show a picture of what was really happening so in some of the poems you'll notice that it actually kind of looks like me or it looks like a scene of what might be happening and that's because that is exactly what was happening i think there's a poem called outtakes of loving a narcissist and in that i have drawn a scene of exactly what was happening in that moment to help readers understand what my experience was that's beautiful and i think a lot of people are like take things in visually and a lot of people take things in through words so it's so awesome that when you're experiencing the entire book from beginning to end you can have both you can like absorb it in whatever way yeah and i think it's really nice to supplement it as well because there were 
more things that I wanted to talk about, but in words, it wasn't the best. So pairing it with the imagery was very helpful. And for me, very empowering. Even there's, I think, a poem where I talk about getting cheated on. And I draw exactly what I envisioned flash of imagery I was getting in my mind at the time of what it looked like. I also wanted to ask you before we go into some of your poetry readings, for anyone who doesn't know, and we'll talk about this in the intro to the episode as well, obviously, but you are a scholar, you're an activist. A lot of what you do is based in the academic world. So you're working in facts, you're working in stat, and of course there's a ton of other creative stuff you do on the side, but even in your work found in QSAW, like a lot of that is fact-based and organization and community. This is a very vulnerable, personal thing. And you are vulnerable and personal in your content. You are, like anyone who follows you on TikTok, that's the reason why you're so relatable. But how did it feel to do something that was really outside of your academic work and super vulnerable and unique? I'm actually very glad that you asked this because I am, or I was a very logical, fact-driven person. I'm very, this is how things are structured. But for me, when I was experiencing profound pain in my life, it actually broke me down to my core. I think for me, that's when the creative part of me was forced to release because even before that, it was like a lot of, you know, I came from that, I grew up in a South Asian household that was like, repress your emotions. We don't talk about it. If you're sad, just stop being sad. Forget about it. <laughs> and so learning how to understand my emotions and kind of when it hits the point of the floodgates are open and there's no point of return you have to address what's going on in front of you I hit that point and that's when I started addressing in poetry because it was at a point where I was like I can't sleep at night because trauma is coming up through my head and I don't know how to deal with it I don't know how to process it I couldn't afford a therapist and I think not being able to afford a therapist was actually the biggest inspiration for this book honestly it was I desperately need an outlet I do not have the financial means that I need and I need to do something. So right. that is where a lot of it kind of came from. And I think that's where the creative part of me came. And I really, really enjoyed embracing that creative side of me. I do find that it is hard, actually, even since publishing this book, to get back into that creative side to process things. But there was also a point when I was writing the poems for this book that I found academic writing to be very challenging because of the abuse from the narcissist who messed up my brain. And I was overthinking everything so much that I couldn't even, I actually got to a point in 2020 that I couldn't string together a whole sentence. Regardless, like it could have been an email, it could have been like a comment on it, like someone's video. And so that also very much helped for writing fragmented phrases with poetry because I was able to essentially say what I want to say, but in such short ways that it felt okay for me to have to write it. That's interesting. That's so interesting. I'm sure so many people can relate to that. Yeah, it's like your brain just really shut goes on shutdown mode, it, all the brain fog, the disassociation. I found that just sitting down and allowing myself to write in fragmented sentences was honestly retrospectively the most healing thing I could have done because I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that my brain was broken or so it felt at the time. Right. And just be, being able to look back and say, actually, it wasn't broken. I might not have been able to write academically, but I unlocked a different part of my brain that wrote creatively. Yeah, it yeah, that's the how I was going to word it. It unlocked another side of you for sure. Well, let's dive into some of these poems. I am really excited for you to read them and then we can all unpack them together. Yeah, absolutely. Before we do, before we do, is it okay if we quickly read the book overview because I feel like it sums everything up so nicely and it's so beautifully written. Don't tell my parents queer diasporic truths by Ali Patel is an unflinchingly honest collection of poetry that follows the author's journey to self-love and self-acceptance as a queer South Asian daughter of Canadian immigrants who reject her sexuality. It unveils her deeply vulnerable process of reconciling queer identity in light of cultural constraints and 
toxic relationships. This book sheds light on the pressure to choose between queer love and immigrant families, which is a common struggle for LGBTQ plus people of color. This book dually functions as creative work as well as an educational tool for understanding the challenge of queer South Asians. I really like that last part. I feel like sometimes we think of poetry specifically as just this creative outlet and it can really be a tool for so much more. Absolutely. And I think also this book, it, it is while it's concise and the fact that it talks about a queer South Asian experience, it touches on so many wide topics like abusive lesbian relationships, family rejection, the journey to self-love. And I think that's also such a reflection of the fact that I do uh, such a multitude of things. Totally, totally. And within this book, there are four key themes. There's family rejection, lesbian relationships, emotional abuse, and discovering self-love. So we were thinking you could read a few of your favorite poems or the ones that speak to you most from each of those key themes. Absolutely. Before going into that, I think I'll start actually with the very first poem of this book called This Is My Truth. It sort of sums up the conversation we were just having. So it says, if my pain is poetic, then I suppose this is poetry, but I'm not a poet nor an artist. I am burnt out. I'm overwhelmed. I'm traumatized. I'm suffering. I sought writing as an outlet when the hurt became intolerable, but there was healing to be found in syntactic expression. My words are my safe haven written for me, not for you. So I refuse to tailor my feelings to fit some capitalist views. This is my truth. I can speak to the first theme of abusive lesbian relationships. So the first one ties together the background that I come from of being South Asian and growing up not feeling good enough, not learning a sense of self-worth and how that showed up in my relationships. So this poem is called Damaged Goods. I am broken. I am hurt. I am unable to love or be loved. I am trying amidst my suffering, but I can never give you what you need. I never know what you need because I am damaged goods. So instead I offer my body in place of the emotive love that I no longer know because I am damaged goods. I'm trying to fix myself, to give you what you need, to know what you need, to be everything you want me to be, but I fear I never will because I am damaged goods. I felt that one deep. Yeah, or feeling like you need to prove yourself wanting to change for someone else. Yeah, a lot of feeling like I just don't know how to show up for a partner or at the time I felt like I didn't know how to show up. I thought there was something inherently wrong and flawed about me. And it was it was hard being in relationships, especially ones that, you know, you really care about, that you cherish. That's going to resonate too with a lot of people. It's so relatable and such a common theme. Yeah, I think this one was a very hard one to put in because throughout my book, it's a journey to self-acceptance. So when I went back to the editing process, I was looking at it and I was like, wow, like I really thought that about myself. It was hard. It was it was rough. And it was, should I really put out an expression of this into the world? But then I had to remind myself, like, yes, this was my process. This was my journey. For a very long point in my life, I did feel like this. I felt broken. I felt, I, I think the term damaged goods is honestly heavy and so important that I had to use it because that is how I described myself for a while. And I think that terminology in itself has so much in there to unpack about my own traumas, my experiences, you know, feeling like because I had been in other relationships where I wasn't treated well, that, you know, made me damaged. But the fact that I'd even been in multiple relationships made me feel damaged, especially ones that didn't work out. The fact that I had been sexually assaulted before made me feel like damage, which is not even a theme that I cover in this book, but it's it's just so much of everything that comes together. And it's like, I'm sorry that I'm not perfect for you. And it took me a while to realize I'm perfectly perfect in the way that I am. Perfection isn't even a real concept anyway. So if I'm not everybody's cup of tea, that's fine. But the best that I can do is show up in a way where I'm committed to self-growth and working on myself, receiving feedback and being open to 
changing. And I'm, that's something that I very much value about myself now too. Yes. Yes. I really appreciate the honesty because you can't have that resolution that you've come to now without the honest shitty part of the I'm damaged goods. Like it wouldn't be a complete story. It wouldn't be a complete growth without the parts where you, you can't see the light yet. Absolutely. And I think also a lot of it was working through the fact that I don't conceptualize myself as damaged goods. This was somebody else's narrative that was put onto me. You know, the fact that in South Asian culture, mm. we see that there's like this concept of you shouldn't date multiple people. You know, you find your one person, you marry them, you're good with them forever. And that's, that's not the reality. And that wasn't my experience. And that shouldn't make me feel damaged. It was always for me and my relationships about knowing, okay, I tried my best. This didn't work out because there wasn't a two-way effort. And I know my worth. So I'm not suffering in this shitty relationship where I'm not being treated in the way that I deserve. And even if learning that about myself was an incremental value in the sense of, okay, I learned a little bit that I deserve better than this. Okay, now next relationship, let's try it again. Maybe like one of my boundaries I stuck to and the rest of them I didn't really, but I'm still learning what my boundaries are because we didn't learn that in South Asian culture. Or I didn't learn that at least. Incrementally growing over what a healthy relationship for me looks like. Yeah, that's amazing. And it takes time. Absolutely. I think just seeing it as an educational experience now rather than I'm damaged. Another one that I know, Persis, you really like, chemistry. Yes, I love a little chemistry over here. Who doesn't? So initially chemistry and Trapped in Mind Sandy were one poem, but I broke it up though. You can read them together if you'd like on your own time, but here is chemistry. Darling, you ignite my soul when you look at me, but boil your blood when you speak to me. And all this time, I was a fool to have believed this was chemistry. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I love a really short poem where you can say so much and so little. Those ones get me the most. Yeah, and I think the funniest thing is it's actually earlier on in the book, so it's like I realized it, but I kept trying anyway. But even just at the point of writing, yeah, you're right. It is, there's so much packed into this one little part, like one little poem where it's just, you know, I felt so much passion, spark, all that, like all those magical feelings that I believe cinema really conveys of you should feel this way, you're going to feel sparks, you're going to feel chemistry, butterflies, rainbows, whatever it is. And I felt all of that. I genuinely did. But I also saw and noted that every time that partner spoke to me, she was angry. She was always yelling. It was, it's honestly trauma that I, and triggers that I still live with, where even currently, as you were saying, it, there's so much packed in this tiny poem that's very short, but just really getting to the point of, you know, how cinema wants you to feel cinema really portrays this image of love will feel like sparks and rainbows and sparkles and all this good stuff and so that's how I felt when this person was looking at me I interpreted it all as I'm feeling so much passionate love but I didn't realize that it was in retrospect probably anxiety but me trying to romanticize those feelings because I don't know, I'm a Libra with a Pisces moon that's what I do <laughs> and realizing that when this person speaks to me you know she's always angry she's always yelling at me and so even to this day it's been I think four years since I left no three years since I left that relationship but anytime anybody gets angry, I immediately get into this fight or flight situation where I'm like, ah, you're going to yell at me. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I have a freeze response, actually, and I, I panic. I just have to kind of go through that self-reassurance of, okay, I'm fine. This isn't going to happen. I'm out of that situation. I can really go lengths to convince myself good. Of course, people will do that. Mistaking anger for passion or even like possessiveness for like, oh, they just really care about me. Like there's so many things. Control. Yeah, I think it's honestly when you want something to work out, you will, your brain will allow you to create so many illusions instead of seeing the logical parts of things. And I am very guilty of doing that. And that is why, my, you know, my relationships 
were abusive that lasted that long because I was convinced that I genuinely believe that everybody is a good person. They might just be a little traumatized, but it took a really long time and a very hard pill for me to swallow was to realize, you know, maybe that's true. It doesn't matter whether or not that's true, but it's not okay for people to be projecting their anger and be treating others in a cruel way, even if they're having a horrible time. Because at least for me, no matter how difficult times became for me, a number one value that I lived by was packed with compassion and being kind. Absolutely. This is a poem called Outtakes of Loving a Narcissist, People with Narcissistic Personality Disorder and How Damaging It Can Be to Be in Those Relationships. So the poem mm -hmm. is, On that breezy autumn morning in my heated apartment, the temperature dropped as if the room were a morgue. I watched her expressions drop blank as she unleashed the beast. In that moment, I was convinced that would be my last day to live. It was never my intention to unleash the vengeful beast. I believed I was wrong and struggled to surmount my guilt for not understanding the depth of my wrongdoing. She refused to communicate as the expectation was to just know, but I had known her short of four months. It is not humanly possible to be that perfect. No apologies were permitted, though I blamed myself throughout, but I had not realized until the end it was just a misinterpretation. That one is very much describes a specific scenario that had happened for anyone that has had the unfortunate time of dating a narcissist really talks about or speaks to the fact that you know narcissists will come out of their way and just get mad at you for literally everything and anything gaslight you blame you make you feel like you are wrong even if you kind of know that you did nothing wrong and in this situation it was you should know everything like you should know what i like what i'm feeling when it wasn't possible and it went against what we had communicated before which is you know we'll talk about it and then just not even being allowed to apologize when i was trying and then it was just at that point in my life i was a very strong person i would say and nothing made me cry like i had been in student politics literally nothing could have made me cry at that point I had such thick skin and I was proud of that. But yeah. this was a moment that I really felt just, it broke me down because I was at a point where I was like sitting there and I was crying and I had no idea what I was crying. I was like, I don't understand what I did wrong. It was just, you know, me sitting there crying and this person staring at me with the blankest expression on their face and no empathy whatsoever, no remorse. And it was terrifying one small experience and it doesn't speak to the entire experience of dating a narcissist, which is literally the worst thing ever. And as I mentioned before, it has like literally rewired my brain psychological damage, couldn't even string sentences together. So much disassociation and brain fog after that. But I find that a lot of the abuse narrative in just in general in society, it talks about men being abusive, women being the victims. And of course, in that very binary view, that narrative hasn't really shifted to account for just anything. So it's almost like anyone who is a gender marginalized person by extension is in the victim category, right? Where it doesn't talk about how those folks can also be abusive who are, you know, women and gender marginalized folks. And I think that for me is what really messed me up a lot too, because I was unable to conceptualize that this person can be. But yeah, speak to that theme of abuse and lesbian relationships. I think that's something that we really need to talk about a lot more in the lesbian community. I think a lot of these things are played off and swept under the rug, even. Um, I think that these ones are actually kind of tricky to address sometimes, but just even as a femme presenting person, but also someone who is gender fluid, you know, being hyper feminized and that being a segue to abuse. Yeah, but just to speak to the theme of abuse in lesbian communities, I think that it's something that really needs to talk about. We need to, as a community, have conversations about how to have healthy relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. And just in general, to not have any sweeping stereotypes of any one group of people. Oh, all women are compassionate and never abused, for example, like you're saying. I feel like a lot of times in the queer community, we've talked about this on the pod, we don't acknowledge the intersectionality happening, like the intersectional abuse, the intersectional prejudice, and it, we have to talk about it because it happens. And it's the same thing with gender, relationships, all of it. 
Yeah, none of that's excused. Oh, absolutely. And I think just the fact that some of these conversations remain so silent is honestly so horrible. And I know I've been seeing more of it, you know, more people talking about it. Yeah. And I think it's just it's time that we have a talk about our trauma and stop putting it on each other within our community. Because at the end of the day, we are a community that needs to come together. We need to stand by each other to actually mobilize our community, get somewhere with collective rights. Like, Where are we going to get with tearing each other down, even whether it's in at a micro level of intimate partner relationships? or on a more macro level of just coming through for the community, as I talk about in my themes of being queer in South Asian. Right. Well, it starts with your book. It starts with things like your book, right? Like these are the conversations that need to be had. Absolutely. I think some a, flip, a switch in my the head went off and I was like, yes, that's the moment of empowerment now. <laughs> it's so true. Even at the event, we were living for it. it was okay, so thankfully good. at the event, that switch went off way quicker. And I think it's because of that tequila shot you gave me beforehand. So that's fine. Oh, Ooh, baby. we will always provide the tequila. That's all we'll say. That's what we do as co-hosts. It's pretty much all we do, really. Absolutely. You know, I considered it, but I was like, ah, it's 5 p.m. I shouldn't. <laughs> I think I can delve into my trauma without, like, tequila today. You can do a tequila shot after. We give you permission. Sounds good. But anywho, (laughs) let's flip the switch to family uh, as a theme. And there's actually a poem called Die for Reflections on Love that connects the two themes of relationships and family rejection quite well. This one is called Die for Reflections on Love. Before I was a lover, I was a daughter of the Isi diaspora with parents that left it all behind when they arrived to give us a better life. My mother and her mother taught me tolerance. In the name of family, we compromise. As they see women, we take seconds or thirds because our stomachs can't be full until our partners and children are fed. This is how I learned to be a lover. So then why does it come as a surprise to me that in being your lover and throughout our relationship, I passively became your wife and a mother? All that I was taught by my mother and her mother was how to take care of a lover for their happiness is our own. So I gave you my everything, even on days I had nothing, and treated you like my Maharani, thinking one day I'll be yours too. But those teachings have failed me, even with Desi diaspora of my generation. I became a wife and a mother, but never once treated like your lover. As immigrants with dreams, surely they will be disappointed to hear their daughter made a choice to end her story abruptly. Because when my parents arrived, they wanted to give me a better life, but I wasted their efforts the day I embraced passivity as a Desi wife, all for nothing. So just some conceptual clarity here. Desi refers to South Asian, the term used in the diaspora, and Maharani just means queen. So what I'm saying here essentially is that I, or is it, I treated her like my queen, thinking that one day she would treat me like a queen too, but in fact, she treated me like the fucking jester. And this, (laughs) this is actually a poem that, well, in that relationship I wrote, and I had, it's actually the first time I shared a poem with someone and I sent it to that partner. She, I didn't tell her it was about her, but she responded by saying, why do you make me sound like such a typical brown fuck boy? And I was sitting there and I was like, I didn't say it was about you, but listen, if the shoe fucking fits, I guess it does. Were you not together with them at the time? I was. Um, it was, you know, toxic people do this thing where like they'll hit a point where they start wanting to break up with you. They want you to chase after them. Then you're like suddenly back together and then you're not again and they keep deciding when you're on and off again that moment it was that mm-hmm. moment and because we had also at least in my opinion we'd gone viral at the time um and in, I, I do think that the reason why she couldn't i don't think she was ever actually in step way unless i did to be honest but 
I think the reason why we stayed together for so long too is because I felt so accountable to the community who was sending us so many messages just saying things like your relationship means so much to me like this is great representation and it's the first time we had seen like a queer representation in our community and I felt very guilty for stepping away from a relationship that means so much to the community that I care so much about. The vulnerability of I'm actually in love and I should do more for you and with someone who is toxic and narcissistic they will keep taking and taking from you even on days that you are so depleted like to a point where I medically my adrenals were depleted I had no energy to function for like three years after that and I'm still recovering and so it's just a lot of the worst factors that could have multiplied and come together in just being taught to compromise and tolerance and you know just like what many of us see in our parents generation of many arranged marriages it's just women compromising and never the men and that's really what was reflected in my relationships and so it really was retrospectively extremely painful to know that that's the situation that I put myself in that I I grew up seeing those relationships and always thought to myself I will never in my life be in a relationship where I am compromising for my partner and my mm. partner's not compromising for me where it's not a 50 50 to know right. that I ended up in exactly that was was very hurtful. It shows how the generational trauma just sneaks in when you least expect it. I mean, what we learn as children, it's there, even if we think it's not, even if we think we're going to rebel against it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that's also the point where, especially as somebody who was very rebellious and someone who was, I just want to do my own thing. Like, I don't care if I'm supposed to be doing those traditional brown girl things. I want to go and join all these clubs and do whatever. And so for that, to see how that played out in a vulnerable side of me, which I do think that being in love is a very vulnerable time, especially if you can actually be in a relationship and let all of your guards down. It is probably one of the most vulnerable things you can do because it opens you up to all of your childhood trauma forefront coming out past trauma past relationship trauma past like just school trauma especially for like folks of color and especially for folks of color that went to school in like white towns like just all of these different facets of trauma coming out into the foreplay and seeing how you respond to that i know some people project it as some toxic partners have but a lot of self -blame. right yeah and when you were talking about how you became the mother and the wife in the relationship i think that's relatable for all women i think all women have experienced that in some capacity whether it's romantic relationship or not yeah. um, and that comes with a lot of like shame what you just described it's like this feeling of like i did something wrong i like i should mm -hmm. be nurturing i clearly didn't nurture you the way i was supposed absolutely. to absolutely and i think another interesting thing to that that actually you brought up at the beginning is that i was a very logical person especially before this relationship I was very logic driven very organizational oriented and I was not a very emotions first person so to even be at a point where I became that nurturing person that see it ends up in the role of like a mother and a lover and doing those things that we've traditionally and I, I when I say mother and lover traditional roles I mean the I mean traditional but also what we've seen growing up in South Asian culture and so yeah. to see that to see that that's where I, I ended up was very difficult for me because it was like a whole identity removal it was like did I lose myself or is this a part of me that I was supposed to just learn how to access in a very chaotic way the other poems you want to read about family are they do you feel like they're also tied to your romantic relationships as well somewhat not really so I can read you one because some of them also just start talking about the fact that my family does not accept my queerness I have made several strides with my mother where although she's not accepting and hope that I don't get married because that would be me outing myself to my family. She is um, actually, after seeing that I've gone through such abusive 
relationships uh at some point when we tried restoring a relationship she saw that i was in an abusive relationship i just kind of broke down to her and then she at that point was like okay if you're gonna be dating women let me at least consult like consult me like tell me what's going on so i can help you so you don't end up in abusive relationships like she just wanted to advise and be more in that parental role of helping me not end up in shitty situations and shitty relationships and to be honest, that has been profoundly healing because that acceptance from her and hearing hearing that was one thing and actually seeing in practice of hearing that being in another abusive relationship where she was able to guide me throughout and say like, watch out for this, watch out for that, seeing how she was right about everything. And at the end of it, I said, okay, well, don't want to disappoint you. And I want to do what I'm supposed to do as like a traditional South Asian daughter, which I definitely fell back into that. Oh, here's a potential to be that perfect daughter for you. So let me just continue suffering and at that point she had said I don't want you to choose being in a shitty relationship that is draining you and that's being with somebody who's not going to be supportive of your career I would rather you always be in a relationship that fuels you and makes you happy and don't choose disappointing us that's not the right choice and so at that point I actually was like okay that's very healing mm, yeah. that's amazing that's progress and you're not alone here's a poem that I wrote that kind of ties actually the theme of family and community together so this one's called lonely how can you expect me to choose queer love over blood kin when my queer community has broken my heart and betrayed me as many times as my family the collective queer community has offered love that is conditional akin to that given by my blood family now I suppose you understand why I feel so alone. Loneliness is such a profound feeling that we, oh, many of us feel in the queer South Asian community. And it's something that is very important for me to talk about because I, at the end of the day, feel like both are offering me a family with conditions and those conditions do not allow me to exist as my authentic self as a queer South Asian person. Yeah, that's a hard pill to swallow. I also feel like when you were reading the poem, I, I, Persis, I don't know if you felt this way, you thought this, but I was thinking about you being femme and how for so many years of you discovering your sexuality, it did kind of feel like being gay was conditional because you, how many people told you like, you, know, you don't look gay, are you sure you're gay? And so yeah. the, in that way, you were almost getting conditional love from the queer community as well because of how you presented yourself, let alone that you were South Asian. It was like you looked feminine. So this one's called Hopeless Romantic. If I knew the cost of loving you from the onset, I still would have chosen an attempt at love because each time I find love, I am hopeful it will last. So I optimistically believe this time will be different only to be proven wrong. When will I learn? Another, just last one to kind of tie up everything I've talked about is chronic grief. I feel so heavy with grief from all the unrequited love that I've put my heart through, but I suppose this is just the life of a queer South Asian woman. That one's really heavy. Like even in such a short amount of words, I feel like so many people can relate to unrequited love and how it keeps happening time and time again, but you want to stay optimistic. But then also being in the queer community, being South Asian and how small it can feel, especially depending on where you are, it's tough. It's it's such a tough thing to experience, especially when it's happening to you over and over again. You're like, when when is it going to end for me? Yeah, absolutely. And, and something about that never ending pain, that theme, it's very much that one that is extremely prevalent in many of our lives. And it's, you know, unrequited love for many reasons. It's either at the end of the day, we end up choosing to not pursue a relationship or 
we end up in situations where we're with people who can't process their trauma and therefore they're projecting and we can't be with someone who is toxic because we have gone through the healing process. Like whatever the wide range of reasons might be, I feel like grief is really an emotion that is experienced by so many of us and it sits with us so heavy and and it feels heavy you know even we're talking about thematic emotions in our body you know amidst all of that you would think that you can find some joy in romantic relationships but then to experience toxic relationships abusive relationships where you're subject to their projections of unhealed trauma that's a type of grief that intersects also with betrayal and such a feeling of love is that one determining factor of whether you'll end up choosing you know family or community whatever that decision might be in light of rejection from both then how are you going to choose it I'm just going to say where's your safe space yeah exactly where is your safe space where is your safe haven that relationship should be something that's beautiful energizing for us to feel and it just really pains me to know that people feel it's okay to be projecting their trauma onto others and my goal is to bring joy and light and love to everyone and i want everyone to experience good love because that could possibly be something that is a safe haven it is something that can fuel positive emotion good experiences be a source of just a fuel to, to live like a will to live giving you hope yeah i think that's exactly where i'm going with that is giving you hope and i was gonna say like not that you should have to ever choose between family and community but i know that for some of us that is the reality where possibly it comes to my experiences and from what i know of the folks in the community that i have interacted with and heard from yeah and it is your experience and like this whole poetry book is like your story and what you're also doing and putting this content out there is showing that love and light to the community and you speaking about some really traumatic experiences is really going to resonate with people who are going the same thing and need that outlet and this book is an outlet so be proud of yourself for tackling that and also using this as your form of therapy thank you it's really really amazing and you're a very strong person thank you so much for also being a part of this conversation and do you have any final thoughts and what you want to leave like the girl on girl listeners and also where they can find this book yeah absolutely i mean i think you put it perfectly well in the fact that this book is literally my therapy <laughs> if you've lost yourself in love if you've had your heart broken or if you've had to like grapple between your head and heart and matters of love or honestly just if you are a person who is existing i think that this book can be relatable maybe not all parts but some parts will be relatable or just that journey to self-worth and seeing the light within yourself is so important so i recommend that i would love for you to read this because i want everyone to understand that they are worthy and deserve to be loved so that is on that in terms of where you can purchase so it is available through most major retailers you can buy it through freezing presses website they have it listed at a slightly lower price but you can also get it through amazon you can get it through indigo online you can ask your local bookstore to order it i have a bunch of things listed on my website www.alipatel.com that's ali with one l and two y's that is all thank you so much for having me on your podcast i am so excited to talk about this book and I look forward to hearing what folks have to say about it.